0: Jerry Mander, welcome back to the new school. I want to say what a pleasure it is to be here, to be doing this in Bolinas. It's in so, Bolinas. It's, Bolina. it's always a thrill. Jerry, you've, um, it seems to me uh, lightning sometimes strikes once. It rarely strikes stri- twice, and it almost never strikes three times unless somebody has really something important to say. Uh, You've written three iconic books, um, of which this is the third. Your Four Arguments for the Abolition of Television and In the Absence of the Sacred both became iconic texts in um, in the world of uh, an integrative perspective. Um, and so now you've written The Capitalism Papers, uh, Fatal Flaws of an Obsolete System, and I'm certain uh, that it will uh, attain the same, um, the same standing. The New York Times calls you the patriarch of the anti-globalization movement. The Wall Street Journal calls you the Ralph Nader of advertising. Uh, you've done extraordinary work in, um, with the Foundation for Deep Ecology and the International Forum on Globalization. And I remember um, some time ago talking to a colleague in the Foundation community who had been working on globalization issues from inside a large foundation and investing a lot of resources over time to advance the arguments. And this was um, shortly after the Battle of Seattle uh, events in which the conceptual framework that you had helped develop played such a central role. And this very thoughtful guy said to me, you know, we were all working the inside track, but it turned out the gerrymander got it right. And it was just a very interesting admission from a very strategic, thoughtful grantmaker who had devoted a lot of resources to this, Mm -hmm. that with a very small amount of resources, uh, but a very focused intention to represent uh, the disenfranchised of the world, Mm -hmm. uh, that you had found a way uh, to become legitimately um, uh, one of the thought leaders of the anti-globalization movement with the Foundation for Deep Ecology and the International Forum on Globalization. So it seems to me, in a way, that with respect to uh, the important arguments uh, that are taking place now about what kind of economic system is sustainable, once again, you've taken the same kind of position. Uh, You've taken an outside position. You're calling capitalism capitalism, and you're arguing in a very
1: direct way that is fatally flawed. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, um, for, those, for that statement. Yeah, I'd like to get the name of this foundation executive <laughs> so I can maybe still get some money for, <laughs> for the future work. Right, right. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I, um, the idea for this book really, uh, I never thought I would do a book about capitalism. But... Um, there's, all, there was all, there's been a lot of flurrying lately because the system is collapsing and there's all this economic problem developing everywhere and, um, and, um, and a lot of thinking about economics. There's quite a few new economics institutes. I'm sure you know all about them. They're listed mm-hmm. in the book anyway and people trying to figure out what kind of system we should have. And um, I, I, we organized at IFG a meeting in 2000. IFG being the International, international Forum on Globalization. Globalization. Right. A meeting, and this meeting was a very big turning point for me. We organized a meeting that was under the heading. It was, it was a seminar. It was just an internal, just about this many people, uh, all economists, mostly progressive economists. But there were a few conservative economists and uh, a few Marxists. And um, it was a pretty good mix, all in all. And it was um, the heading of the meeting was: uh, Is capitalism soon over? Because people beginning to see that this may not be viable. You know, a system that worked all right 150 years ago may no longer be viable in the current context. This and year, was, this was what year again? This was 2008. 2008, right? And um, so we had we had this meeting, and. Uh, after It was a three-day meeting, a very private private meeting, not a public meeting at all. And after hashing it out, we basically concluded that the system really doesn't work anymore. It's not viable any, anymore in the current context, and it really probably can't be saved. And we, and we started to put together a, um, a uh, I mean, if we wanted to save it, and uh, we started to put together a statement sort of with all of our observations in it. And uh, two of the economists in the room very well-known ones. I'm sure you know, I'm not going to name them, but I'm sure you know, if you follow this territory, uh, these people, they've written blistering books against capitalism, but never once used the word capitalism. Never used the word capitalism. They always used, you know, free market fundamentalism or free market or uh, co- global go- Corporate globalization, which is a good word. I used it for many years myself, a good term. But we were about to make a statement about capitalism. So these two guys st- stood up and they said, uh, uh, sorry, if, you're gonna, if, you're, if we're gonna come out with a statement against capitalism, um, we, we have to leave the room and, and, not, and not participate in the statement. And, and you can't use our name on the statement or make reference to our even being here. We were really stunned by that, and uh, because we'd all read all of the things they'd written. We knew where they stood about it, so why were they saying this? So we asked them that, and they said, uh, well, um, if we use that term, we're going to just marginalize ourselves. We're going to be called communists or socialists and and become irrelevant. And... um, so I think it was I said to them, "We're irrelevant already, you know, because uh, we're we're already marginalized. You know, we're not writing articles on the front page of the, you know, we're not carrying ourselves our story in mainstream media. You know, it's highly resistant. The globalization story got carried, but in a in a in a in a in a broad critique, it it wasn't it didn't get carried in terms of that the system was really broken." So I, I thought about that a lot after that meeting, and I said, that's really, and then, and then I heard Bill Moyers speaking at EGA. And, um, that's the Environmental Grantmakers Association. Engra- Environmental Grantmakers Association. And um, he made a, a terrific speech, and he basically quoted Socrates saying, if you're, gonna be, if you're gonna focus your energy against something that's failing, you've got to name that system. Mm. You've got to name it, and you've got to deconstruct it. You've got to say, what are its ingredients that makes it behave that way? And uh, he was quoting Socrates to that effect. And, um, and he said, so I'm going to name the system. And I thought, oh, oh he's going to say capitalism. And instead he said, uh, plutocracy. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's good. He put a name on it. And, and the idea of getting everybody focused on a name is that everybody then you know, we will have common ground and look at it the same way, and it's not amorphous anymore. You, you get to see it. And then you, if you deconstruct it, you, you make agreements on what it's all made out of. So I thought to myself, well, plutocracy is not really the right name because plutocracy is really a subset of capitalism. Just, just like right now, we have a plutocracy. I mean, we do have one here already. We have, a, you know, the, the 99% versus the 1%... Uh, uh, is a good example of that and, um, uh, but that all has evolved over time because of the fundamental characteristics of capitalism and what are those characteristics. So while, we're, while we want to talk about building a new system, you know I've been involved in movement building as you, as you kindly pointed out for almost 50 years now and one thing I've learned is that it's really important to get straight what's wrong with what you're talking about you really have to get the negative. The negative is very appealing to people. And just talking about some new way of doing things will not have as much appeal unless you can really make every point you can about the non-viability of the thing you're talking about that you want to change. And this goes back to damming the Grand Canyon, for that matter. You know, you have to really explain all of the consequences of it before anybody really, you know, would think about it.
0: Now, just on that point, on damming the Grand Canyon, just could you parenthetically talk about the role you played with David Brower on stopping the gra- damming yeah. the Grand Canyon?
1: So, um, yeah, back in the 1960s, um, when I was in the commercial advertising business, um, which I spent uh, about a dozen years in, um, David Brower wandered into our office. This man here was a friend of the, a friend and neighbor of David Brower's. And he's got some stories about about him mm-hmm. that he might tell later. But anyway, uh, Brower wandered in and said, uh, "Congress has just passed just passed uh, a new um, a new law uh, giving permission to uh, put dams in the Grand Canyon, and um, we need to. And, and it's already passed Congress, and and uh, we, we need to find a way to stop this." So he said, I, I, I want to run some advertisements. It was his idea. And uh, Well, why'd you come? He with the Sierra Club. Yeah, well, he was the head of the Sierra right. Club. I assume right. everybody knew right. that. He yeah, was a very iconic figure. For our, very for powerful. our audience, for oh, our global for, audience. For our radio audience. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> um, well, He's a very iconic, very powerful guy. He really built the Sierra Club into a right. modern, right. battling institution. Uh, and um, so we said, well, why are you coming to us? He said, well... I really like the typeface you guys use, because so, we had we had a, a tendency toward very old-fashioned, bookish kind of type, and he really liked he really liked that. You know, we thought it was because of our style or something, but it wasn't. So, so he said, "Okay, here's the here's the here's the text for the ads I want you to run about the Grand Canyon," and we said, "That's David. That's bad writing. It's not it's not it's not advertising writing. What you just did." So here's the way we, it ought to be done. Well, you know, this is over a couple of week period. Here's the way, here's the way it ought to be done. And um, so he said, no, 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 no. My way works better and so on. We had an argument. And um, finally we said, okay, in those days, the New York Times would be, was willing to run what, what they call successive imprints. In other words, you could, this hit of the paper got his ad and this hit of the paper got our ad and it went all the way through the whole million copies of the New York Times, so exactly 50% hits of each of us. And uh, we outpulled pulled him three to one in terms of responses, <laughs> uh, in terms of money raised and all kinds, of th- all kinds of measures we were using in those days. So he said, okay, you're right. Uh, let's, you guys write the copy from now on. Stick with that typeface and we'll take it. So we did a whole series of ads. The, the most famous one in that period was uh, the argument in favor of the dams was um, by the Bureau of Reclamation was how important it was to, to put water in the canyons so that people could ride in powerboats along the edge of the canyon walls and see the, and see the walls up close, you know, and get a better view of the walls because they were sitting on top of the lakes. And That argument was working. It worked in Congress. And so uh, we then ran an ad saying, uh, should we flood the Sistine Chapel so tourists can get nearer the ceiling? And, uh, so that was one of a series of about 15 <laughs> ads we did on the Grand Canyon, and that turned it around completely. Stuart Udall made an announcement that he's had more responses on this campaign than he's ever had on another. Stuart was the Secretary of the Interior at the time. He's had more responses than he's ever had before, and, um, the administration is not going to support it, and the Congress voted voted down what they formally voted in, and, uh, and uh, the Sierra Club jumped in size from 40,000 members to 220,000 members in three months, or four months, or something like that.
0: And this, just to drive it home, this was because of creative public service advertising.
1: This was, this was advertising. That's yeah. what did it. That yeah. was the main part of the campaign. He had given up on everything else. He had already fought the yeah. battle in Congress yeah. and lost. He had already fought about the administration and lost. And uh, he was lost. He, he said, we've got to run ads. He's, he managed to get the club to put up a pretty big budget, a couple hundred thousand dollars in those days. That was a lot of money for advertising. So we were able to hit, do a few rounds in the New York Times and then money started pouring in and we were able to really keep it going and we turned around completely. And then we, then we did the Redwood National Park after that. And then we did um, North Cascades National Park.
0: And so you created all, the Public Media Center, the first public service advertising company. Right. Well,
1: uh, after a while, I no longer really was so into commercial advertising right. because this had been a commercial advertising agency, right. and and I was a lot more interested in the in the political and environmental right. and anti-war, because it was the Vietnam War going on at that time too. So I was that's what I was really into personally, and. Um, so I, well, we closed down there. Gossage died, my partner and Howard Gossage died, um, and I had the choice do I want to just keep this thing going to do commercial advertising. And uh, actually, it was a very amusing thing happened because we had a car client at that time, uh, Rover and Land Rover cars, and it was just at the time where people begin to think cars, you know, you know, cars are not so good. And, and so we approached, and we had this environmental, because of Brower and the Sierra Club and this work, we, I really got educated on environmental stuff. I owe him a lot, Dave Brower. Um, I owe him the rest of my life, in a way, for what I wound up doing. And uh, but I, So we went to the car company, Rover. It's an English company, but it had an American um, division. And we said, um, why don't we run ads about... Um, uh, computer commuting because computers were just coming out, and, and where and where you could do, you could join up with other people and uh, share rides. You know that was a new, a new idea at the time, and uh, also uh, come out against the annual style change. Say that that's, you know, pretty simple ideas in retrospect, but um, Rover said they, that was ahead of its time. They couldn't really do that. They the company really wanted to sell more cars, not less cars, and so. So we really couldn't do that. So then I was interviewed. Do you know Henry Weinstein? Did you remember him? Henry, you were Weinstein?
0: interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. A
1: Wall Street Journal reporter came to see me and about these public service ads and also he about our commercial ads. And he said, um, he said, um, uh, how do you feel about doing these uh, automobile ads? So I said, you know, I don't feel so good about it and I feel really bad about it. And, and I told him about this idea and and he wound up putting it in the article. And it ran on page one of the Wall Street Journal, and <laughs> the next day, by the time I got into the office, we already had a telegram from a Rover saying, uh, "Sorry, you're you're not our client. We're not your client anymore." And the next day, the Wall Street Journal also had a page one uh, story saying, uh, um,
0: "Ad man doesn't." Ad have man to worry.
1: no longer. Ad man no longer has to worry about automobile client or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I said, okay, enough of that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not suited anymore to commercial advertising. So um, I formed the first non-profit advertising company in the world, as far as I know, but certainly in the United States, called, at the time it was called Public Interest Communications. Then it later evolved into Public Media Center. And I stayed with that for quite a while. We did a lot of environmental ads for Brower and for Friends of the Earth and for all kinds of things, a lot of indigenous uh, uh, organizations and anti-war and did hundreds of ads yeah. over the years. And, I, and it, was while, it was while I was in um, that work that I decided that somebody's got to say something about the power of television because television is, television, I was beginning to realize, I mean, I was in advertising and I began to realize the power of moving imagery can you know put into people's brains, and that the average person is watching four and a half hours per day in the United States, more or less the same around the world, a little bit less actually on average, a few places is more, but four and a half hours per day, they're sitting there with images pouring in to their brain. Uh, Gossage used to say it's a dirty little secret of advertising that those images, once they go in, never come out, <laughs> and that uh, it's, an, it's an implantation system and advertisers were the star athletes of how to do that and how to, how to put that in, you know. And, and you say the intellect doesn't protect you. In other words, we think All smart people think they know that they... Yeah, yeah. well, if I, fact, say, if I say, uh, yeah. if I say uh, gecko to you, do you get any image? Yeah. It's an insurance company. Yeah. If I say, uh, if I say um, uh, a chihuahua, mm-hmm. if I say chihuahua, Taco Bell, do you get that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little bit old now. Mm-hmm. Gossage used to use the example of a jolly green giant. Mm-hmm. And you know, people would come up with these, I was on the radio last week and did this little exercise with the, with the interviewer because he was poo-pooing it. And I said, uh, I gave him those things and he, and, he, and he said, yeah, I'm carrying that. I said, well, did you know you, you were carrying around those images, you know, those trivial, meaningless mm-hmm. images? So it's as you repeat that over and over and over again, it gains power. But the point is that it's an, it's an implantation system. And I began to worry about that. And I began to think about the consequences of that. And that the whole world was sitting there. And the fact that a handful of corporations basically own all of mass media. Right now, I think it's seven corporations own about 70% of global media, something like that. And I didn't check this year yet. but. Um, um, seven corporations. And now they have subsidiaries, so you don't even know that it's General Electric that owns this one and this one and this one. But they're, but they're seven corporations, own 70% of media. And people are. everybody thought, well, by now, people wouldn't be so attached to television because we have the internet. It's all interactive and it's great and so on. That has a lot of advertising on it too. And it didn't diminish the amount of television people watch. People watch the same amount of television now, they just also have the Internet. So the average television viewing figures are exactly what they used to be in the 60s, or roughly what they used to be in the 60s. And now the Internet engagement is almost, is about equal. So people are just spending double amount of time experiencing the world through technology and through machines. And, and um, You actually have a line in here,
0: which was very interesting to me, that you say television Advertising people don't talk much about it, but that they believe that given the opportunity, they could restructure human consciousness completely.
1: Well, they already have. Yeah, I mean, it, it's already it's already a done deal. Right. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, what? Wh- how do people's consciousness develop in the first place? They develop by direct experience and right. interaction and and education and so on. But if a if a majority of their waking time is spent through Inf- dealing with information machines of one kind or another, and especially in the form of imagery, which is far more persuasive in terms of changing their consciousness uh, than, um, let's say, radio where you at least imagine you can use your own imagination mm-hmm. aspects or reading where you do produce your own imagery. Um, those media are less um, negative, uh, for sure, and could, you could say positive in many ways, But uh, we're, it's a, yeah, it's a creation of consciousness. It's a creation of global consciousness. It's one of the arguments in the book, in this new book, uh, what I call the privatization of consciousness because it's, it's, I did an updated version of the TV book in this book so that um, people would see how that tendency of the medium has been privatized. With a handful of corporations running it now, it's basically just an instrument. And all of those people running it running the media, all have the same, I mean, one is selling cars and one is selling soap and one is selling cosmetics. But it's the same message. Buy this, you're gonna feel better, you're gonna be happier, you'll have more power, you know, you look better, et cetera. It's the same. it
0: It took you four arguments to abolish television, it takes, you, it takes you six arguments to abolish capitalism. It's
1: actually seven.
0: Seven, okay. Well, you, well in, in the beginning, you listed six by my, at least. Oh, really? Well, at, at the beginning, let, let me just read them. Yeah. Uh, the six arguments I read were amorality, dependence on growth, propensity to war, intrinsic inequitab- inequitability, uh, undermining democracy and doesn't bring happiness.
1: And the privatization of consciousness. And the
0: privatization. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. seven arguments right. for the abolition of capitalism.
1: Yeah. The, but the book is really structured very much like four arguments. If mm-hmm. some of you have read four arguments, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I almost called it Seven Arguments Against Capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I decided I don't want to use that same
0: mm-hmm.
1: approach. I, I feel bad that I didn't do that now. I probably mm-hmm. should have because it would have been clearer. But um, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's seven distinct... Well, they're not really distinct. They're overlapping arguments um, but made in seven separate kind of discussions. Of so let's go the through impacts.
0: them. Let's okay. go through them. Okay. And just sort of briefly each one. But a- amorality, amorality. what's the argument? Well, for?
1: amorality. I mean, this... Well, the only purpose of capitalism is wealth expansion. It has no other purpose. By that, I mean, it has nothing in the system is, 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 is created to improve society or to improve human health. I mean, unless it's a product about human health, but it's no intrinsic value of the system. You know, the definition of capitalism that I use in this book is from Emanuel Wallerstein. Um, and his definition is, is really, really good. I think it's much better for the moment than Marx, than what Marx and other people like that had to say about it. And it is... The, the, the capitalism is wealth, constantly seeking more wealth, in a, to be in a better position to seek more wealth, to be in a better position to seek more wealth, to be in a better position to seek more wealth, ad <laughs> infinitum. That is, that is it. There are no other values to come into that construct. You know, how many people saw that movie Avatar? I talk about that in the book. It's a very interesting... Only, only you saw it? Other people saw it? Oh, okay. Well, I thought that was a... That's, that, I thought it was, a, it, was a, it was a good movie, but it had a spectacularly great scene in it that uh, I talk about in the book and I think is very, very important. And that is, this is about a spaceship, a corporate-owned spaceship, Armada, actually, which goes out into the universe to find places where there are still resources because we're running out of resources just as we are now. And it comes on this planet that has tremendous supplies of resources still available, so they want to get it. But it turns out there are Indians, on indigenous people living on this planet. So what are they going to do about that? So they send down their military, they have a military group, and they send down this little army down to there, and they talk to the Indians, and they say, oh, you've got to move off your land, because we need to get at these resources. And uh, you can go around the other side of the planet, or go to some other planet. So the... The Indians say what they say today, which is, no, we're not going to move. Uh, you go to some other planet. <laughs> and uh, so then the military guy calls the guy in the spaceship, and he says, um, and he says they won't move. They say they're not going to move. What should I do? Should I kill them? And he says, uh, he says that, that, this is where the, the great moment happens in the film. The film sort of slows down, and he goes through a little internal process. He's thinking, hmm. Should we kill them? Well, the shareholders won't like it if we kill all these innocent people. On the other hand, they'll like it a lot less if we get a very bad quarterly earnings report. So, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and kill them. And that's what that process is—a very good illustration of what I call—and I also did it in in the absence of the sacred, called um, corporate schizophrenia. In other words. Corporations are institutions that have a set of purposes. They're basically one purpose, which is profit. In fact, it's their legal purpose. If if you're a corporation on the New York Stock Exchange or on any stock exchange with investors and so on, it's illegal for you to not seek profit. You have to always make the choices that are for profit, period. That's your value system. But the people are people. Who, who are incorporated. You know, they work in corporations. They, they, they're your neighbors. They have children. They go to school with your kids. Uh, they come over to your parties. Uh, you know, they're human beings, and they have a set of human values that they care about. And those human values are often very much in conflict with what the corporation has to do, and they have to do inside the corporation. Another example I use is the uh, example of the Bhopal incident in... Uh, in India or the Exxon Valdez. In both of those cases, the presidents of those corporations remarkably went on television and made I feel so, made speeches. I feel so terrible that this happened. I feel so bad. We killed all those people in India, and destroyed the, land, the, the wildlife in Alaska and the indigenous people. I feel so terrible. I feel so bad about that. I'm gonna spend the rest of my life trying to correct this problem. they both. This happened very close. These events were very close to each other. And they both did that. They said statements more or less exactly the same, about they were gonna devote their lives to correcting this thing that they did. Even saw that a little bit from BP when that uh, spill happened. But then, two months later, they were on television saying, it wasn't our fault. This other corporation really caused it. We got conflicting reports. We don't think all those people were killed. The captain of the ship was drunk, it's his fault, we're gonna sue him, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And no, we're not, we're gonna fight this all the way through the courts, we're not gonna give any agreement, we're not gonna do anything. And, they, and in the case of uh, Union Carbide, they're still fighting it, you know, 20 years later. And um, Exxon came up with some uh, settlement. And But that's corporate schizophrenia. That the problem is that if you're inside that construct, the construct, is, is very fixed. It has got to make profit, period. No discussion.
0: So now, that's that, the immorality. Huh? That's the immorality. A- it's amorality.
1: Yeah, right. It operates without morality. Absolutely. Without consideration of morality. Now, there's a distinction I make in the book that I really, it's always important yeah. for me to say, which is that when you're talking about that characteristic mm-hmm. and many other characteristics, you have to make a distinction between large-scale, and national, publicly-held, or global corporations which are operating with with major investors and so on; those are the ones who have to follow that rule. If you're running a local bookstore or a, or a market or a uh, or a, a service in a lo- in a town, if it's a locally owned operation or a family-owned enterprise, or, you, you may act immorally in, from that role, but it's not required. In other words, you you have choice. You have. You have real, you can make a different decision because you don't have anybody coming down on you. In the case of these Union Carbide, you know, the, 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 the board of directors calls them up after they make their first speech. And they say, you can't say that. You can't say you're sorry. You can't say it was our fault. Our stock just fell 300 points. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be out of business if you keep saying that. Or you're going to have to leave the corporation if you keep saying that. But a a small, locally-owned, local enterprise that has local activity and makes a profit and continues to serve in the community is not the same creature. It ought to have a different name. And I go to a lot of discussion about this in the book. You know, It it really is not serving the same set of values as a large-scale corporation. Now, it's still profit, and people still call it capitalism. But I don't call it capitalism. I, I think it's not we need another name we need to, we need to, we need to come up with another name for small scale locally owned enterprise because it's it it, it they cannot op- they have the choice to operate from community oriented values or environmental values or, whereas the large scale corporation that's not mm-hmm. that's not in the cards for them
0: so your second argument against capitalism is its dependence on growth
1: yeah well of course probably most people in this room already are aware of the growth problem that we're now facing. But the thing to focus on is that um, capitalism absolutely, without a stop, I gave you the Manuel Wallstein definition, absolutely without, without a question must grow. It must expand. It, it has to produce continuous growing profits or it will suffer tremendous decline and collapse. And that's the crisis that we're in now in the, in the world, you know, in the, with the so-called economy failing. And the remarkable thing is that we think, you know, we all in the environmental community are aware that there are limits to the earth. You know, there's nature, there's nature. Nature only has so many resources. We're already running out of air. We're running out of ozone. We're running out of fresh water in the world, very seriously running out of fresh water. We're running out of arable soil. Tremendous crisis variables. So that's what one of the reasons food uh, uh, prices are going up. Most of the, many, many of the important minerals um, that are, you know, like the lithium and coltan and rare earth minerals and zinc and is a whole long list of minerals in the book that are that we're running out of soon within. Australia has already issued an emergency notice saying that um, their economy is greatly threatened by the fact that you know it's a very big mining. Uh, country that they're running, they're beginning to run out of stuff. Ten years down the road, there's not going to be enough uh, of that. So the and of course Richard Heinberg, you've, he's spoken here, and he, yeah. he, he you all have, of the post carbon institute read, huh?
0: of the post carbon institute yeah post carbon
1: yeah. institute uh, down the road. Yeah. Um, he has he has written a marvelous book uh, called the party's over, uh, which is a great title, I think, and other books similar to that saying all of that expansion, expansion, expansion is over. It's not going to go on. And so that's a fundamental uh, characteristic of capitalism. It's, it's got to keep growing. If it doesn't keep growing, um, it collapses. And so we're having a very serious uh, growth, growth crisis right now. And yet we're watching an election campaign right now where the que- issue of growth has... I mean, growth is only... They're all for growth. You know, no, 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 there's not one candidate for national office for sure that ever they're all about who can do more growth than the other one can and actually neither of them can do growth and and they and they and they they're completely unaware of the and they may get it to grow for a little bit but but you're you're we deal we're dealing with a with a planet you know we're dealing with a we're dealing with a natural world that has only so much of so many things. And in the case of, for example, arable soil, as the thing gets scarcer, it's not that people try to get more food production out of it. Africa, for example, has been bought up massively lately by speculators, financial speculators, Goldman Sachs types, who are buying all the land up in Africa because that's, that's the last big Available arable soil that has not fully been converted to food, but they're not growing food on it. They're speculating. they they know that since there's a scarcity of land, they'll buy it, kick the native people off who formerly were growing things on there with the with the with the um, support of the governments for the most part. Put the, put this thing into their trading system, and wait till the price doubles or triples or quadruples, and then sell it and they bought it for like uh, in some cases you know like 100 dollars an acre and they're selling it for thousands and thousands so it's so that's the beginning of the end on food too and um, so it's a it's a, this this drive toward growth is is an absurdity i mean it's it's, an, it's a ridiculous absurdity on, on a finite planet and it can't go on and it's not going on and no not, not, nowhere in the political system is that even being Discussed. For that matter, environment is not being discussed. I saw a great analysis in the New York Times a couple weeks ago after the Republican and Democratic conventions. I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but they did an analysis of what words were spoken at these conventions. And, you know, jobs was at the Republican convention, jobs was said 382 times or 500 times or whatever. And, uh, you know, transportation was mentioned so many times. The word environment was not mentioned ever at the Republican convention by anybody, and the word nature was not mentioned ever by anybody in the in the whole three days of the Republican convention. The Democratic convention it was mentioned like eight times, and uh, <laughs> and nature was not mentioned at all. Environment was mentioned like uh, eight times, but I mean. They're nowhere. They don't. I mean, this is this is the most giant reality that is being ignored. You know, the fact that we're that this is that everything in this room is made out of nature. You know, sweaters are made out of nature. The chairs and the floor. It's all it's all from nature, and and nature has been the provider. Nature's what's made possible. So it's been, as Heinberg says, the party's over. You know, we we, we're using it all up. There's there's enough of it left for another. In some cases, another couple of decades, or other kinds of minerals, or maybe last longer. So it's a very, very—it's it's a fatal flaw of the system. You know, it's a system based on growth. So the third in a, in a finite environment.
0: So the third argument, after amorality and dependence on growth, is a very important one, which is the uh, propensity to war.
1: Uh, in the book, actually, the third argument is um, is. Um, the intrinsic inequities of corporations.
0: Oh, okay, I, uh, I was working from an earlier uh, well. That's all right. Thing in it. Okay, but well, let then, me let
1: me do the corporations first because yeah, yeah. it's closer that's to good. what I've been talking about. Right. And, uh Then the war becomes a kind of subset right. of that. Right. But the um, the the the, the in- book goes into a lot of detail on corporate structure and. It's a subject that everybody already knows. In fact, all of these are subjects that everybody already knows. For me, it's telling seven stories that everybody already knows, and you put them all together, and it's a new story. That's what I think. But in any case, the corporate, the corporate structure is a very big part of why we're getting the outcome we have. And by the corporate structure, I'm talking about the hierarchical. hierarchical. Corporations are made of you know 90% workers of one kind or another and then you get a, 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 a few people at the top the top executives then you get a board of directors and then you get the shareholders the investor the investor class so all of the workers the office workers and the and the production workers are all on salary they're paid they're paid a, a fixed amount that's decided by the people at the top now this is totally obvious but Bear me out, and I'll try to reveal what it all means uh, in a little while. But um, the people at the top, meanwhile, the top executives, are making. The last time I looked, uh, in the book, the figure I use is in the Fortune 500 companies. The average chief, the average CEO of a Fortune 500 company, is making 635 times the salary of an office worker on the average, and and a factory worker, 635 times. This is way more than any other country in the world. This is, you know, in most other countries it's down like 20 times more or 40 times more, or it's also a lot, but but just completely off off the scale in terms of what other countries um, are doing. And all of the money that comes in to the corporation comes through this hierarchy comes through these people who are at the top of the machine and um, um, they decide what to do with it. So it's the chief CEOs, the board of directors, and then representative of the major investors. They're the people who make decisions about it. Some of the money's put back into the corporation to uh, advance its production uh, facilities or open new uh, facilities, one kind or another. But in a climate like we have now, that's not done very much because the, there's, the, you know, there's, there's worry about continued expansion, so they tend not to do that. Um, and so a lot of that money is redistributed among the top executives or to the board of directors or to shareholders because they've got to keep all those people uh, happy. Meanwhile, their actions on the workers are to try to get the workers to lower the amount they're paid or to quit their unions or break up their unions or 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 else they're converting they're converting the jobs uh, to uh, automation they're ter- they're putting machines in instead of the workers so then you get this massive unemployment um, uh, factor involved, but the money at the top stays stays big, and the net result of all that leads to another argument in the book which is. Uh, about plutocracy, you know, the argument of um, centralization of power, uh, because when, when all that m- money and wealth gets expanded, and, and and in the book I go into like the fact that the, the kind of income, the kind of wealth that's created from this process, it's not only the salaries that they get, it's also the bonuses that, that they get, it's also the dividend distributions that they get, then it's also the ability to take that money and reinvest it. So um, they're making money off the money the, that they make. So you reinvest reinvested in whatever financial instruments they can. And so, I read a, I read a book in the sixties called Two Factor Theory by Lewis Kelso. I don't know if, if we, are there are any economists in the room. You've probably read that book, but it's it, it it's the book that opened my mind to this to this to the way the money flows. How 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 spectacularly unequal it all it is, and and how it gathers up at the top at the top levels, and it meanwhile eliminates and decapitates uh, the lower levels, and how it increases the power of the upper levels, and a lot of the new investment that's used now, they they put it into um, uh, they they don't put it into productive what we call the real economy anymore. They put it into the virtual economy. You know. These derivatives and things like that—these, these, these, these uh, investor-invented things that don't have any role in the real world at all, except to try to make more money for the people who already have our experience. It's like uh, Las Vegas. It's, 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 it's a kind of Ponzi scheme that uh, operating on a uh, gi- giant scale. And um, and one of the ways they're investing money now—and this is a I'll quickly cover a get rid of this fourth argument—is is that they're investing in, in, uh, in government. That is to say, they're buying candidates. They're buying presidents. They're, you, know, they're, you know, the going rate for a senator now is about $250,000, $300,000. For a congressman, it's about $100,000. $100, for a president now, it's almost a billion dollars. So the wealthiest people are able to put money into those people to guarantee that they're going to cha- keep changing the system to make it more useful for them and, um, and, to, and to be able to dominate everything and, and continue to have their tax breaks in there and all the kinds of things that make all of this multiply. And so that's, what, that's the situation we're very much in now. In fact, you mentioned Foundation of Deep Ecology. I worked for many years with a guy named Doug Tompkins, who was a very rich local guy from Esprit who started this foundation. I was his grant guy. I was the guy who ran the granting program. And at a certain point I said to Doug, here we're giving all this money to environmental organizations, which of course was a very, very good thing to do. But you know, we'd probably get better results if we just gave $100,000 right to a senator. Mm-hmm. And then the, all the things that we're fighting for in the streets and fighting for could just be handled by the senator who, who create new, new laws, you know? So we were ahead of our time. Not that, not that other people didn't already do that. But uh, we, he refused. He's
0: and you point out that you point out that actually, <coughs> it's an incredible bargain to buy it's a politicians. It's very cheap you buy a Compared to, in other words, it's a very compelling argument yeah. that the nonprofit advocacy structure, people put hundreds of thousands <coughs> of dollars into advocacy, <coughs> when the same money applied to buying politicians. Would get the, the, a better they outcome. They just bring it up in, in Congress. They way. they make a new rule in yeah, Congress, yeah. and then the
1: president's already been bought off, yeah. so he he winds up supporting. It, and so, yeah. and so you get uh, you get oil drilling in Alaska. Yeah. You know, uh, you know it's it's or you get whatever. You know, you get. The all problem
0: the is that the advocacy community can't compete with the resources. No. So that even if you tried that route. They just outbed you.
1: Also, everybody's ashamed of it. You know, it's right. like uh, Doug wouldn't do it. Well, I mean, and I non- was of course you, you couldn't
0: do it in a nonprofit structure. You'd have to do it in a. In, no, you, that's right. His yeah.
1: endowments. His his. You'd uh, have
0: to do it on a for profit. That's on right. A, he'd have to yeah. give it out of
1: his personal thing, exactly. but it would be less money to the foundation. So right. in effect, yeah. he'd be doing he'd be giving less money to the yeah. to the social activists yeah. and political yeah. activists and more money to the right. to the. Um, uh, to the people who, uh, to more money directly to, to the people who make the laws. Right. But that's what's going on now. Man, we you've been reading about the, 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 Koch brothers, I'm sure, and you know these people are spending billions and billions this way. It means nothing to them. Those are the richest people in the world. These, Edelman put what 20 million dollars already into hmm. these things. This is just to get favors, and to get and to get uh, further benefits and to reshape the system according to to what they're. So all of this. So that part where you get this gigantic concentration of wealth which then controls the political process mm-hmm. is connected to the hierarchical structure. But the important thing to realize when I finish, to finish this hierarchical thing is that, I don't know, about 70% of employment in the United States is within this format. Within, you know, People go to work every day and they work for those structures. And they work in a situation in which they have no control and, and it's, the whole system is hierarchically organized. Massively hierarchical, you know, And all of the power's at the top and all of the, the gigantic material wealth is at the top. And that's the majority of the people in the country. It's also the majority of people in the world. So we have a whole world now. I think it's a little less than 70% in the world, but basically the, 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 the instrument, that runs economic activity in the world that makes all the decisions about what kinds of things happen and what kinds of things are promoted and what's produced and what's not produced and where the money flows and so on are all these hierarchical structures that operate according to rigid hierarchical form and, um, and only in their self-interest. So that's the world. Now, is that, is that, is that good? You know the, Obviously, it's... it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I argue it's it's not workable, it's not going to continue, but it's it, we also need to make, you know, kind of conscious decisions about whether we think that's a good thing or not. Dealing with how to get rid of it is a whole other bag of worms, and I do deal with that to some degree later in the book, but I feel like it's very important for people to see, yeah. to see the nature of the problem.
0: We're not going to... I want to get to some audience questions, too, and we're not going to be able to go through all seven. I'm talking too long. No, no, it's good. But just because I do read carefully, I want to tell you how I got your order wrong. In the... Economic succession, which is the first chapter, you outline the structural arguments.
1: Oh, and I put the, that and actually the there are
0: six, and I was following that oh, I'm order. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's and, a mistake. But I forgot to uh, <laughs> I forgot to go back to the order of the chapters. Oh, we'll and fix so, it in the paperback. <laughs> so so uh, that that structural argument segment wants to be updated uh, because We'll give a paperback soon, yeah, and right. yeah. we have like. Right. I, I've gotten about right. two dozen of right. such mistakes. Sorry but, about that. But, um, <laughs> but the uh, so that so that uh, I guess what I want because we're not going to be able to go through all of them. Yeah. Not a yeah. not a problem. Um, what is striking about the book, as you say, is that none of the arguments are new. But when you put all seven arguments together, it is a new argument. It's in its power. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to go to the last chapter, which is which way out. Uh, Because in many ways, um, uh, as I said to you, we met at the post office, and I said to you, Jerry, it's it's a great book, and like other efforts at this, the arguments against capitalism are less powerful than the argument for what the replacement should be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I want to, uh, before we go to your arguments there, I want to note that uh, y- you talk about how you have followed closely the new economics arguments. And uh, uh, so David Corton, who you know well, is, mm-hmm. is one of the key uh, thinkers there. And, and one of the most influential is Gus Speth, yeah, the, f- the former November head of, of the mm-hmm. School of Forestry at mm-hmm. Yale who really is sort of the iconic figure of the most mainstream, credible version is this of this. book right here? Yeah, and he has that new book out. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't see, and I wanted to ask you why, is that there's also, and maybe I just missed it, but I don't think so, there's also a very interesting argument going on about the nature of money and the nature of currency. Mm-hmm. And this book by Charles Eisenstein, which I'm sure you know, Sacred Economics, mm-hmm money, gift, and society in the age of transition. Basically, a number of people are making the argument, which I didn't see in your book, mm-hmm. that, that the heart of the issue is the nature of money itself and that, uh, that the fiat currencies, which used to be based on a, on a gold base, and then Nixon took us off the gold mm-hmm, standard, mm-hmm. and that left the whole world free to just print money Mm-hmm. And so this vast amount of money gets printed, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the consequence is that the whole system's based on trust. In other words, trust that this piece of paper, which no longer has any concrete base, mm-hmm. uh, uh, has value. Mm-hmm. So a whole group of people have been arguing that what we need instead is, number one, local currencies, mm-hmm. which are service-based ec- ec- economies, they're all over the country and all over the mm-hmm. world, uh, which, aren't, which are based on real things, on exchanges mm-hmm. of services. And the other idea is that we have to create uh, a currency based on a basket of commodities, instead of basing it on gold, mm-hmm. basing it on a basket of coal, oil, wheat, the, mm-hmm. you know, minerals, metals, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Uh, And and that if it were based on a basket of commodities, Mm -hmm. that it would end the speculative uh, Mm -hmm. development of unlimited money, uh, and it would also um, uh, require that that countries live within their means. They could no longer print their way out Mm -hmm. of things. And finally, the final point is that you point out that capitalism itself is based on growth, but... The way the fiat currencies work they're based on the need to pay interest because the money is created out of nothing and and interest is paid on it. Mm -hmm. So a a commodity based currency would not have that interest growth rate involved. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is as you developed the book was there a specific reason why you decided not to include the currency arguments?
1: Actually no. Okay. It, was, it was just, uh, over, it, was, it was, I wasn't into that uh, okay. th- yet okay. Okay. Um, there and um, I, I and, then a, and then suddenly time was running out and uh, right. the publishers said the world is collapsing, you've got to get this book <laughs> uh, <Right>. out here. <laughs> I was supposed to take right. two years to do right. it and they right. wanted to do it. Right. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a newcomer to that discussion, right. but it has always looked to me like um, two, two points. Mm-hmm. One is that it is part of the Ponzi scheme. Characteristic Mm -hmm. of the system, which is manufacturing value, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, banks manufacturing Mm -hmm. money, and more and more value put into uh, virtual economic Mm -hmm. instruments is something like this. uh, And that as these things continue to grow, you know, you have to invest here in order to get the profit here. And then when you get the profit here, you have to reinvest here. At a point that cycle stops, then uh, everything collapses and the Ponzi scheme has, mm-hmm. has been Because the Ponzi scheme can never go on forever, it's eventually gonna collapse. And I think this business with the ma- value of money based on um, non-material aspects mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. The, is very, very important. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think in a world that has uh, its values organized properly, uh, all value would be material. That mm-hmm. is to say, it it wouldn't ever be in a speculative mm-hmm. form, and um, and uh, and it would also be local. I mean, so the 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 basket of commodities that you're talking about, or the basket of of uh, services, or mm-hmm. would would be the basis for economic value. But as this, as as things more and more localize, which is what. You know, one of the things I talk about in the alternatives section is, uh, is I don't use the term subsidiarity, but it's a, I, I have another book here that I did in, called Alternatives to Globalization. This is actually a much more expansive argument about alternatives than I had in this book mm-hmm. because this one talks about a whole reevaluation of transportation, manufacturing, investment, banking, and so on, each one of them in greater detail. And... Um, And 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 promotes the idea of subsidiarity, which is to say that all power has to be, has to move toward the local at at all times. So, Mm -hmm. I I didn't really. You didn't get into I I didn't get into it. I didn't get into it, and I just began to get educated on it. And I and I think I'm still learning about that idea. But a lot of people do ask me about it now, and I think it's I think it's very important. Mm -hmm.
0: In the in this final uh, thing, one of the things I really like. It's a chapter called "Which Way Out." Is that you are properly humble about which way is out? That that there are, you you review a set of different options, mm-hmm. and you say in effect, um, there are a lot of good ideas here, but let's be let's be humble about this, and let's recognize that one size may not fit all.
1: Well, um, you know, I think the the thing I use there is the you know you. you I think, I think, you know, there are now, as you know, hundreds of thousands of organizations now working to define an alternative economic system. I, I, what I do in my last chapter here is point out what I think of as the uh, principles of a, new, of a new economic system. I'll go through those very quickly in a minute. But I think, I think there's a lot of work going on in terms of um, envisioning Alternative system. Gus Speth is very good, Corten is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy named Ross Jackson you've mm-hmm. probably read. The TELUS Institute I think is marvelous in terms of creating scenarios, various scenarios for how it all might, might look. In some ways, getting the scenarios and the images of what an alternative society should look like is the easy part. The hard part is getting from here to there yeah. you know, because as I explained throughout most of the book, the whole system is engaged and constructed exactly to not go in those, in a, in those uh, sustainable or uh, egalitarian or nature-based uh, visions. And coming up with the visions is very, very important because we need to do that, but we also have to figure out a way to dismantle the, the instruments that are preventing us from going ma- making material all those things. I mean, Gus Speth has a million good ideas, and um, and he's he's a former Carter administration uh, EPA director and a Yale dean, a dean at Yale, and uh, he was with the Council on Environmental Quality, and uh, uh, he's got great ideas. When he's the first one, he wrote a book uh, with the title "Bridge Something," Bridge yeah. to something, and. Uh, He's very, very, very good at it, but he also acknowledges the difficulty is in the bridge. I personally think, that's, this is one reason why I focus so much on getting people, see, I feel like it's like, it's like any other kind of movement activity or, or movement creation activity. You know, you can know where you want to go, but you also need to expose and dismantle the thing that you're against clearly enough so that you gain... Support for it, because in some ways I think the positive vision doesn't generate. In my experience, I mean, advertising is proof that negative works better than positive, and uh, we see it in the campaigns now. You know, all the all the advertising in the campaigns is all negative, and that's because people get more impacted by that. So, from a from an activist point of view, I think it's almost more important why you're talking about positive visions to focus on the negative problem that we face and to get really clear about it and to articulate it in each of its fundamental points. And then the second thing, the second part of that is movement building out of that. That hasn't started at all. I mean, we have a lot of new age institutions um, trying to create visions that we can get to. Except the Occupy movement. The Occupy movement is, is a great example of mm-hmm. what kind of thing needs to happen the Occupy movement accomplished one of these, one of my seven points was best illustrated by the Occupy movement than any other thing that's come along, you know, is the, the 1% versus 99%, it's actually 0. .0001% versus, and they managed in one year's time to put that idea out in the world very, very, very importantly. Another idea that is getting exposed now, and it's the seventh point, I'll just say very briefly, the seventh point of the seventh argument of the book is is that capitalism doesn't make people happy. You know, so you have you have you have this immorality and inequity and inequality and war and so on. And is it making people happy? You know, and the United States, which is the home, which is the global center of free market, you know, unregulated capitalism. is... There's, there's capitalism in a lot of different places, but no, nowhere is it as unregulated as, as it is here. Uh, ought to be the happiest place in the world if, if it really worked, if it really benefited human beings in any way. And we're way down the list. We're you know, sort of midway in the list. And meanwhile, in all the other, all the other uh, value systems, you know, infant mortality, obesity, uh, violence, uh, rape. Uh, well, rape is a difficult figure to talk about because those figures are very weird. Um, but um, in most other measures that people use for to to identify whether it's a happy society or not, we're first in the negative on the, on on almost, almost all of those. Prisons. Huh. Prisons. Prisons is another one. Prison incarceration. Um, and uh, let's Well, see. we get
0: the list. You know, Jerry, one of the most lovely segments in here that I want to make sure we mention because you make a very strong case that there's an inherent tension between capitalism and democracy. And then you go on to do something that I've, you do better than I've seen done before, which is to uh, delineate the degree to which the founding fathers in creating the Constitution Deeply drew on the Iroquois Confederation uh-huh. experience. This
1: is very Which had
0: lasted for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And you show, I'd heard it referenced before, mm-hmm. but you really go in depth yeah. into the depth of, mm-hmm. uh, of Franklin and Madison's. Livingston. And Livingston,
1: deeply knowing. These people all spoke Iroquois. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And, and they. Well, the point is, and I do write about it in. Yeah. Pa- I write about part of it in in, in the absence of the sacred. But I spent a lot of time with indigenous people in the 1980s and did this one book in, in the, I've done several books on indigenous people, but uh the iroquois i did do a, an additional element in this book because one of the things i i i in, in the in the wrap up section of the book where i'm talking about positive you know what how to what are the principles of a new economy I talk about nature has to be recognized it has to be very much part it has to be considered equal it has to be definitely part of all of our calculations. Scale is crucially important. Small is better. And uh, talk about subsidiarity and, thing, and smallness and so on, and, in, and, and then revising corporations and so on. But I spent a lot of time talking about, and not a lot of time, but some time talking about indigenous, indigenous people, and particularly the Iroquois. The remarkable story about the Iroquois is that the colonies existed when, when, you know, when the United States was being born in the late 1700s, you had Boston had 10,000 people, New York had 10,000 people, Philadelphia had a few thousand people, and Washington D.C. had a few people, and every place else was Indians. You know, they were living in a world of of just living inside. So the indigenous people, they had to make, they had to talk to them, and they had to work with them, and they had to make sure the roads are clear so they could you know, go from place to place and we wouldn't have constant wars with them and so on. And, um, and in the process, uh, a lot of these people who later became the founding fathers and were leaders of this process of how to come up with a constitution that represented a, um, a um, confederacy uh, because it was a confederacy of states that they wanted to put together. There was a confederacy of states surrounding them. The Iroquois confederacy which had lasted for thousands of years. Thousands of years, and there were six, at that time, there were six nations that had made a confederacy, and they had a structure. They had rules. There, was a, there were great books about it uh, that are not well noticed. Uh, Ilka knows a lot about them. Um, and, uh, they, the, and so they, they spent a lot of time studying the Iroquois, and uh, Jefferson, Madison, Livingston all spoke Iroquois fluently. Ben Franklin hung out with the Iroquois all the time, and, um, and Franklin said that it would be a surprise
0: if these quote savages were able to do a confederacy if we enlightened white people yeah, couldn't figure. Yeah. Out he how invited
1: to do it. forty of the Iroquois chiefs. I mean, chiefs in the Iroquois are yeah. not chiefs like we understand yeah. them, because there's no that hierarchy form doesn't exist in the, in the Iroquois model. There are no. There are no presidents. There are no. Ch- there are no top down. There's no top right. down. Right. There's, the there's a chief right, of party. There's a chief of party. Right. chiefs are appointed by, in most cases, by the women in the, the Confederates, women. and they have particularly. There's an agriculture chief. There's a war chief. There's a. And they can be replaced chief. by the women if they the don't, women don't like what they're pull doing. pull them back out again. Right. So the. So the. Um, so. Th- but they had. They had created a a, a a Confederate model of government. So Ben Franklin. In 70, remember the Albany Plan of Union was yeah. where the Constitution was first constructed, and that was 1754. There were 40 members, 40 chiefs from the Iroquois were invited to that and participated in those discussions, and the question to them was, how do you, how do you make a confederacy? And, they, and so they described their confederacy, which was, um, you know, they had these various houses, you know, there was each of, each of the six nations, at that time it was six nations, now it's Later on, it became seven nations. Each one of them had two legislative houses. There was an all-men's one and an all-women's one. Each one of these houses operated by consensus processes. That is to say, the people had to talk and talk and talk until they agreed. And then the the men had to talk and talk, then the women had to talk and talk, then they had to talk to each other, and they had to all agree in the end. Then, if it was a larger thing affecting the whole Confederacy, then they went to a, uh, an annual or biannual meeting of all of, the, all of the legislatures of all the confederacies, confederacy members, and they go through that same process. Everything was by consensus. They had to always agree by consensus. In fact, I had an interview with Oren uh, Lyons, one of the most famous uh, indigenous activists in the world, uh, uh, that I quoted in, uh, in the absence of the second. I said, well, what if, what if people didn't agree on something. What if they couldn't come to a consensus? Agree agreement. He says if we couldn't if we talked and talked and talked and didn't have a consensus. Then we drop the subject, <laughs> <laughs> and we would bring it up again a little bit later. Then we would talk again and see if we could agree then later. And you know, if it was really an important subject, let's say we're being attacked by some other tribe, they would make it. They would agree. So it was it was sort of a, a way of judging whether the, how important the thing was. So. But it was all consensus process. So they explained all this confederated system. And the United States uh, founding fathers wrote, wrote us, adapted that, so that uh, you had these separate houses making separate kinds of decisions. And then they had to have an agreement process. Um, but it wasn't, there were no women included in that. And they also wanted a an administrative level, they wanted a um, chief
0: executive.
1: A, a chief executive. So then, when they built, it, they built the, presidents, the presidency, and that they had all come from monarchies. These people, you know, they were all related to monarchies before they tried to put this confederacy. So the U.S. confederacy is kind of a distorted version of the Iroquois confederacy. Mm-hmm. But a lot of credit has been given by scholars to the Iroquois mm-hmm. discussions, and uh, I quote, you know, I quote some of the books in there, and uh, you can easily follow it up. Um, there are books on the whole Iroquois model and the, and the whole Iroquois... Um, uh, but what I have in this book that wasn't in the previous book was something I didn't know when I wrote the previous book, which was that in the 1800s, there was an anthropologist named Louis Morgan who studied this whole thing about the Iroquois and the Iroquois model and the relationship to the U.S. Constitution of the Iroquois model. And... Um, He was read and followed by uh, Engels and Marx, Um, and Engels quotes him at length in um, Origin of the Property, Origin of Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. He quotes the Iroquois model, which then influenced Marx enormously. And you can make the case that the Iroquois had as much influence on communism as it did on U.S democratic forms, and that's, think about that, From that's really an astounding, uh, that's an astounding uh, fact, you know, that the model, because you can look at, the, at, at Marxism or communism, and you see the consensus processes operating, The, you know, uh, and uh, non-hierarchical forms theoretically operating, I mean, in practice, it didn't work out that way, but it, again, it was an, it was an adaptation which went, which went bad, but the roots of both, with the roots of both were the same. That's remarkable. You know, for, to me, it's like, uh, the, you know, the Jews and the Arabs fighting with each other, and yet they're exactly alike. You know, right. all, all the dietary habits and the clothing habits and the male-female things. And the children of Abraham.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so one of so, my experiences in in writing long pieces or books is that that after I've finished it, I begin to understand what it was that I was trying to say. And I wanted to ask you. <laughs> Before we go to the
1: questions up yeah. to the audience, yeah,
0: what did you learn from writing this book?
1: What did I learn from my? Well, first of all, I didn't know what capitalism was until I wrote this book. I, I, I mean, I've been living in capital. I've been an advertising guy. I, I but until you really uh, decide that what you want to do is identify the elements of the system, and as you point out. I, I put seven uh, key characteristics, but there probably are 30 that I could have uh, done. But I, I really, it was an education for me. I mean, I think I understand capitalism better now than when I started. And I keep understanding it more the more I talk about it. And I also understand where I, things that I left out and so on. But I, I do believe that um, it's, uh, I, I, I more firmly believe than ever that the taboo on talking about capitalism has got to be ended. I mean, even speaking the word capitalism is hard, is, and my wife said, well, I should ask the audience, um, let's everybody say together just the word capitalism and see what you experience. One, two, three. Capitalism. You know, that may be, it may be that you haven't used that word very much in your, in your, in your time. It's like the vagina monologue. Right? <laughs> I feel like, uh, I feel like, um, I feel like uh, it's 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 a it's a taboo word, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's the story I told you about the beginning about the economists. They do not want to use that word, and um, and it's because it's got so much negative energy on it, and because there's so many critiques of you know the, of of people who use the word no advocate. Did you notice that too? That the poster for this event, uh, put up in the post office, had. Uh, Dirty communist or something written on it about me? Huh? It was a Marxist. Dirty Marxist. Dirty Marx. So, and so then they took it down. I don't know whether they took it down or who took it down, but they put up a new one, and it happened again. So somebody in this town is um, doesn't want doesn't want to talk about this, and yet I am not a communist and I am not a Marxist. I am not a. I'm not even a socialist. But in this book. In the last section, I argue that right now, what we really need, you know, the, the term for the new economy that I like best is hybrid. Mm-hmm. You know, we've really gotta look at everything now and see what works. I mean, I think the idea of some degree of central planning. I'm very, very much in favor of localization. You know, We've, we've gotta got include nature in all the calculations. There can't be any, you know, we have to go for a steady state economic system which is not growing anymore. We have to go for a, uh, some degree of the dis- redistribution of wealth to take care of people who've been ripped off by the system up to now. We need to, get, we need to redesign corporations for sure so that they're no longer functioning on that same model that they're na- now are and are managed in a different way, and so on and so on. There's a lot of ingredients in that that I talk about in there. But, um, but, um, but I think the, a very important way to proceed is to look at every system now from the Iroquois to the communists, to the socialists, to the, to, to the Scandinavians. Now, if there's a system that's working better than any other system right now, it would have to be the Scandinavian countries. That, and that is not a pure capitalist system, and neither is a socialist system. It is a hybrid system, and it's a, it's a... You know, it's got elements, it's got a certain degree of capitalism operating in it, and it's also got a, a, lot of, a, a lot of central planning and control and governance. And they're ranked number one or in the top five of the happiest societies in every, in every single case. It serves people, it believes in services, it believes in you know, guaranteed jobs, it believes in healthcare for everybody, it believes in, in maternity leaves, and believes in all the things that make, make life better. And yet, it has it in the context with some degree of capitalism operating. So, that's a hybrid model right there. But I think we could, we could if, if, as long as we're talking about, about this, we should really try to figure out all the ingredients of what would make for a great society. And I know all these people are trying to do that. And I, so, I, when I mentioned this to Annie Leonard, who you all know, hybrid economics, she got very, very excited. She said, let's do. Let's, do, let's work on hybrid economics. You know, an, an economics that takes the good, that at least theoretically, when we're discussing it, grabs the good from things that exist. You know, as I say, I'm not for, I'm very much in favor of localization, local economy, um, ruled by, by uh, local energy for you know, worker-based or community-based uh, economics. Bring it back to the local. I'm very much in favor of that, but we're in a big world right now where a lot of things are collapsing, and uh, a lot of people are deprived. And there's a lot of there's a lot has got a lot has got to operate outside of the local in order to in a transition period. So some degree of central planning um, and an agreement on principles has got to take place also. So, um, but as I say in the book, you know. We can talk about it, we can put it out there, we can create the vision, but as an activist, my feeling is what I've got to do the most is figure out, use my time to figure out how to get from here to there, you know, how to somehow, that's, 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 our, that's really the work right now because um, this system, you know, with those ingredients of negativity, I didn't even get into the war part, you know, which is really, really, really serious, how it depends upon war, this system. The United States is 50% military production. Could you say a few sentences about that? Well, it's... it's, it's, um, it's um, <clears throat> ever since the Second World War, the United States was pretty low military production for a while, but since the Second World War, you know, the U.S. had to convert to a high degree of military production. You know, we were coming out of the Depression... And then came the and then came the Second World War. We suddenly had to convert our industries into military industries. The soldiers went off and got jobs in, as soldiers. Women women went into the factories. Very high level military military production. And then the war was over, and there was a lot of concern.
0: And the war got us out of the depression.
1: The war got the war is what got us out of the depression. Right. Roosevelt did a good job, but the war got us out of the the war got us. The war is what got us out because we had a high level of production, employment, and so on. But then the war was over, so then there was a question: Well, what are we going to do with these empty, with these empty factories? So uh, the women had to come back out of the factories so the men could go into the factories, and uh, how how to proceed? So there were a lot of discussions in the White House, and I go into this book into into it quite a lot in the book about wh- how to proceed. This was in the Truman administration. What do we, what do we do and They agreed that military production should no longer be thought of as the occasional thing that you do in in, in very dangerous situations. Military production has got to be part of the national economy. So uh, it's got to be a combined uh, um, military and and, uh, commercial economy, and uh, it's gone steadily up ever since then. So you had
0: advertising to create false wants. And you had the military to keep uh, people that employed piece of and
1: also to keep dredging up uh, potential violent conflicts uh, to, you know, that, that, that keep you know you either need a war or you need a preparation for a war, and you need to keep it very very you need to keep it going. We've, well, the United States has had wars ongoing almost all the time, or at least threats of war ongoing with, new enemies constantly coming up ever since then, and that's to keep up. Uh, You know, a high level of fear about right now. You know, I'm working right now on uh, one of my big tasks with IFG. Right now, is is working toward uh, doing something about what is called the Pacific Pivot. How many people have heard that term? Pacific Pivot is announced by Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Panetta. They all made speeches about it in November. Obama will still use the term occasionally, and that is, that is the new U.S. policy, which will bring the, the majority of the U.S. military away from Europe and away from the Middle East. That's what they're trying to get out of these wars in the Middle East, and use that military energy for toward 60%, 60% of U.S. military energy is going to go to the Pacific from now on. New bases being built all over the place. Uh, you know, my wife just came back from Korea where there's a big battle over this Jeju military base over there, uh, which is a U.S.-Korean base destroying an indigenous village and beautiful corals and so on. And uh, just base after base. The U.S. already has like, uh, uh, I think the, the latest I looked, was about 500 bases in the Pacific. And, uh, and, and it's all about stopping China. China is such a terrible... Uh, military danger. We have to put all this military out there to stop China. That's what. That's how it's all described, especially by Panetta, and Clinton. And um, but um, it's not really about that. It's really about. It's really about economics. It's really about keeping up U.S. military production and keeping these bases going with McDonald's and, and Halliburton and everybody doing all these services out there. It's just a very. It's a, It's now forty-seven percent of the U.S. discretionary spending, and. Um, and, and does China have all these bases? You know, People think, oh, well, China, we've got to defend against China. China has no bases. You Pacific. know, there's an
0: interesting case to be made that, that um, when you look at the rise and fall of hegemonic powers, which uh, is a much broader scheme than uh-huh. just the American case, and which includes systems well before the development of mature capitalism, that, that the way hegemonic powers come to, into being is that They start out by representing a coalition of states that uh, feel they'll do better under this new hegemon. The hegemon comes to power with a kind of a broad representation of interests, which was the United States at the end of World War II helping create the United Nations and the Bretton Woods Agreements and stuff like that. So that was perceived as in the collective interest, and the United States was a kind of guarantor of a world peace and a collective interest and then as it begins to decline its interests become more and more hard power versus soft power more and more focused on self-interest versus the collective interest and then it expends its resources on uh, you know, war and uh, overseas uh, stuff and, uh, and destroys its currency, prints too much currency, and collapses, and a new hegemon reemerges hmm. so the point about that argument, and indeed Immanuel Wallerstein has one of the most sophisticated more, much beyond his definition of capitalism, mm-hmm. an extraordinarily sophisticated analysis of world systems. Uh-huh. You quote his book on world systems, yeah. so it 's useful to place the argument about American capitalism and hegemony in the context of mm-hmm. the analyses of the rise and fall of hegemonic powers, because many of the characteristics of uh, you know, overseas wars protecting mm-hmm. things and, and selfishness have gone on long before mature capitalism took
1: place. Uh-huh. Well, I'm it's sure that's true. I'm sure that's true, too.
0: Jerry yeah. Mander, author of The Capitalism Papers, Fatal Flaws of an Obsolete System, Thank you for being with us. Oh, well, thank you school. so much,
1: Joe.